0: Let's turn to John chapter 19, so week three of Lent, and um, the Sunday sermons have been uh, geared toward looking at the last seven statements that Jesus made uh, from the cross, Um, and we get to the third one today, and so let me give a little bit of... uh, a little bit of con- like really specific context to maybe help us get the most out of this. Um, so Jesus was a he was an he was an interpersonal like human being, and I, that might seem like oh yeah we all know that, but it's important for us to think in terms of like Jesus the human for this one today especially. Okay, so Jesus was a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man at the same time, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, it's one of those, it's kind of the Trinity, it's one of those things where we do our best to grasp it, uh, but there is no sort of like, nothing under the created order is exactly like that. We can say, oh, it's just like this, or just like this. Um, God has not given us anything created to that is a uh, exact replica of him in this way. And so that's part of his unique, uniqueness. Um and so being 100% God and 100% human, uh, the scriptures point toward the fact that Jesus, even though he was totally 100% God, he chose not to like draw from that divine nature. That when we see him teaching or performing a miracle or doing anything at all, uh, it is not we're not necessarily looking at him pulling from the God power that he has, but instead uh, he has humbled himself and says, I'm not going to draw from the divine power. I'm going to draw from God empowering me. So the same way that you and I live by the power of the spirit, Jesus lived by the power of the spirit. And so he's relying on the spirit to give him insight and to give, it's like to make miracles happen and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes it's easy when you see some Jesus doing something and be like, well, yeah, he was, he was Jesus, you know, like in his, in his life where he is choosing holiness over sin over and over and over and over again, we shouldn't be like chalk that up and to like, well, he's God, so of course he was doing that. No, he's not accessing his divine nature. He's doing that by the same empowerment that you and I can do that. Um, and so he was like an, uh, a human being and he was an interpersonal human being, meaning he had relationships just like you and I have relationships. Um we know that he had family, he had friends, he had uh like he was a a public figure, so he had supporters, he had enemies, he had acquaintances, he had strangers, they're just that's the world that he was living in. Um specifically in regard to his family, uh we know that he was born into the home of Mary and Joseph, and so you're all pretty familiar with that story. We know that he had uh four brothers their names were. I'm going to make sure I don't get these wrong. James, Josephs, which is my favorite. Uh, James, Josephs, Judas, but not that Judas, uh, and Simon. Those were his brothers. And then it says in Mark six that he had some sisters, but we don't know their names, so uh, TBD on that. Uh, but that's at least a nine-person family that he grew up in. Okay, at least nine people. So he understands family dynamics because he lived. Uh, in that home for 30 years until he was baptized and went into ministry and began to travel around. Um, so we also know that he had friendships. Um, he had 12 disciples that he was friends with. He told, he like told them directly, like, I call you friends. Um, within that 12, there were three, Peter, James, and John, that he was closer to than the other nine. And then within that three, John was the closest to him. So his best friend would have been John. Um, So we know that he had friendships. And so Jesus is living in this like interpersonal, relational world. And uh, the same kind of relationships that we all have. And the thing that we have to keep in mind about relationships is that we were created in the image of a relationship. Father, Son, Spirit perfect relationship. And if you were to think of it as like if you had a stone and that stone was completely solid, okay? Then that stone would be in it would be in a state of shalom. Its wholeness. Father son spirit wholeness. Adam and Eve created in that image, wholeness. When sin entered into the world, it's like if you took that stone and you dropped it on the ground and all these like cracks and fracture points started to just sort of kind of work their way through it, that that's when we began to be at one another, like against one another, pitted against each other. And um, that's where our relational like pain finds its origin. And so we are like relationships are like a stone that has been dropped on the ground and all these fractures are there, but some parts of it are whole, and that's why we can be a tremendous blessing to one another. And then we can turn around and hurt one another severely at the same time. Uh, Jesus lived in that world, in the world of fractured relationships. And so we bring ourselves to the third saying, and we're going to get a running start at it. The way We've been in Luke the last few weeks. John has a different perspective. If you've been reading along in John through Lent, then you, you know that by now, that he's coming at the whole storyline in a different way. So we'll kind of set the scene and let John speak to that this morning as well. So let's pick up in verse 16 of chapter 19. So he delivered him over to be crucified. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Okay, so let's talk about who's, who's there at this point. You have Jesus hanging on a cross, thief on each side. If you were here last week, kind of have an idea of that whole thing. Um, and you have uh, a couple of Marys who are there, like a bunch of Marys, right? Um, Mary, his mom, the most important of the Marys that are there. And John, the disciple whom he loved, that's a title that John has now mary we don't know we don't know a lot about Jesus' relationship with his mom. Uh, we do know a little bit about his relationship to his family, which may give us a little bit of information about how to understand what's happening here. Uh, it says in John chapter seven, "For not even his verse five not for not even his brothers believed in him okay so those four brothers did not believe anything that Jesus had to say about who he was and what he was here to do. In Mark chapter uh, 3, Jesus is gaining this following. It says in verse 20 and 21, He went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. A few verses later, 31 and 32, it says, His mother and his brothers came, standing outside, they sent to him, called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, So his brothers didn't believe in him. His mother and his brothers went to this gathering to retrieve their son, who they thought had lost his mind. Like you can almost like see them like working their way through the crowd. Like we're sorry, like we're his family. We're sorry, he's just kind of lost it. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna take him home. Yeah. What that tells us is that to his mother and his brothers, uh, Jesus was completely misunderstood. Like they they didn't get him at all. So Mary, standing in front of him, his mom, he just didn't understand him even though even with the immaculate conception and everything that's so sweet and tender and wonderful and beautiful about advent and bethlehem and all the all that stuff it it wasn't sustained it's no disrespect to her just saying it's what the bible tells us so you have her and there are a few other people there and then there's john now, five times John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we know that's, that's who he is. Um, we know that John uh, was in the group, according to Mark 14.50. It says, they all left him and fled. So Jesus is arrested. Uh, there's the whole like cutting off of the ear incident. And then they all take off. All the disciples flee. John being in that group. So in Jesus' desperate hour of need, his best friend had bailed on him, but now he has found his his way back. And so there he is, the friend who had just sold him out, um, and then his mom who had misunderstood him his whole life. And look again at verse 26. When, when Jesus saw his mother... And the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I grew up going to a, a, like a, it was a, Christmas time event, but it was like the first half of it, it was at First Baptist in Zachary, and uh, the first half of it was like fun, uh, the, the choir was in tuxes and there was like people coming out and Frosty the Snowman would come ice skate, you know like those kinds of like things, and there would be an intermission and they would turn the whole place into this like kind of like Jewish marketplace deal, and then they would act out the whole story of Christ, and I like went to that a ton as a kid, and then played in the orchestra when I was in college and stuff and like part of the dialogue was Jesus hanging on the cross and he says, Woman, behold your son. And I always thought he was being like, Woman, look at what's happened to your son. But that's not what he's doing. He's saying, Woman, look at John. He is your son. He is now your son. And then he looks at the disciple and says, Behold your mother. He's having them look at one another and. Basically saying the care of my mom is now in the hands of John, my brother. So in his most dire of moments, hanging on a cross, he's still providing. He's still caring. He's still shepherding. He's still doing what he does. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. So why is it significant? Why would... Why would that make the cut? Because the first statement, Father forgive them for they know that what they do, like that's like got some theological, salvation-driven importance. right? The second thing, to the thief on the cross, same kind of thing. Today you'll be with me in paradise. That has huge implications about salvation. This one just seems like they could have left this one out a little bit to me compared to those other two. But this is equally massive me convince you of it if, if you're holding out. Mike, I was taught in seminary. I have three points. Um, the first point is kind of an indirect thing that we learn from this, and then the other two are, are I think, direct. Here's the, here's the first the first point, the indirect point, is that Jesus understands you. That's what this, te- this shows us. Jesus understands you. Specifically the relational pain that you have had to walk through in your life. Because he also had relational pain that he walked through in his life. He had firsthand experience of the way that sin has fractured our relationship and has brought brokenness to the shalom that we were created to live in. As I said a few minutes ago, his family did not understand him. And some of you are like, oh, my family doesn't understand me either. They didn't understand this guy, like he's he's perfect, <laughs> you know? They didn't believe that he was who he says he was. They didn't understand his ministry. They thought he was losing his mind. They tried to get him to come back home. This dude's living in a completely different kingdom than they are. Like in, like in his mindset, and they just don't understand it. And some of you are like, I know exactly what that feels like. Because some of you have family members that think you are insane for following Jesus the way that you do. They don't understand what you're trying to do with your life in regard to like obedience to the Lord. They may not even like this church that you're a part of because, because it's just weird to them. And if you feel like a summary statement is like, yeah, I'm very misunderstood by my family and that's painful to me. Jesus understands what that's like because he lived that way all the way through. He understands that pain. He also understands that our friendships can bring a lot of pain to us. Now, they could be a huge blessing just like your family can be a huge blessing, but they can also bring a lot of pain Let's think about the, what his friends have done in the last 24 hours. Okay? So we're in the moment, Jesus hanging on the cross. What has happened 24 hours prior to that? The sun starts to set. They go into the upper room. Jesus has had someone prepare a Passover meal just for the 12 of them. They spent three years of every moment together. They share the Passover meal, which is incredibly personal, and he redefines it in a way that we have set out this morning. It's this beautiful, amazing time. We'll, we'll step into that time, Thursday of Holy Week. I hope you have it on your calendar. That Thursday night together. And so they have the, the Last Supper. He begins to share with them his heart. And, and either in the upper room or as they traveled to Gethsemane, He is speaking to them. What we now have is John 13 to 17. One of the most just beautiful stretches of scripture. The vine, the branches, like all all of that goodness is happening. Just it's like the kind of night that you want to have with your friends, right? It's deep, it's meaningful. No one's on their phones. No one's talking about surfacey things. It's just like, yes, rich. They get to the garden. He says, stay awake with me while I pray. They keep falling asleep. Three times. Then one of them uh, comes storming in the garden with a bunch of guards. And he had uh, literally handed over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to be arrested. One of the 12. Over the course of the trial, Peter denies even knowing Jesus. And at some point, everybody just flees and takes off. So within 24 hours, he's had the best of moments with his closest friends. And he has been abandoned by all of them. So if you're sitting there and you're like, yeah, friendship is hard. And you're carrying around pain because friendships have an ebb and flow to them. Uh, Jesus is like, yeah, I, I, I get it. I get it. What it's like to have your family and your friends just bless you, and I also know when it's when they just crush you. He understands it. He gets it. Really, any any relational brokenness that we bring to the table, Jesus has experienced it. And you may say, well, what, well, what about the times when, like, actually you were the one doing the breaking? Like, what, if, what about when you were wrong? Because Jesus was never wrong, and so Jesus doesn't know what it's like to, to be the betrayer of someone or to, the, to be the one who said the unkind thing or who shared the secret that you were asked to keep confidential. You know, those kinds of things. Well, what's happening in this moment, we know theologically, is that all of our sins are being put upon him. And so while he's never engaged in that, he has felt that. Because that thing you did was put onto him. And so he gets it from that standpoint. And even to the extent of like, well, what, about, what about abuse? You know, like we've, we've gone all in with this uh, abuse, ministry, abuse healing ministry called Mending the Soul And without getting too much into it, let's just say this: that Roman crucifixion checked every abuse box that's on the list. There's different kinds of abuse, and they were like, "Yeah, let's make up, let's come up with something that just goes through every single one of these possible things. Let's violate these criminals in every possible way." And so, when I say that Jesus has been through it. He's been through it. That the cross brings all of that pain together. And so the, the first part, part of significance, I think, for us is that Jesus, he understands that we hurt each other. And so your rabbi, savior, intercessor, king, prophet, priest is not someone that you have to explain yourself to. Isn't that exhausting, you know? When you're like you, you you're trying to help someone understand you and there's they're like, you mean this, you mean this, you mean this. You're like, oh I wish you could just jump inside of me. Jesus understands. And that that may be why he brought you here today. Second thing. And really the these two two and three spring off of that. Like with that understanding what does he do you know with that understanding one thing we see him do is that he restores so the forgiveness that he prayed for in the first statement from the cross father forgive them for they don't know what they do he he asks he prays for forgiveness then it shows up immediately in saving one of the thieves so from that forgiveness, that, or that forgiveness starts to run its course and brings salvation to one, and now is bringing re- reconciliation and restoration to these two. In, in this like single motion, he is restoring the pain that his family has brought to him and that his friends have brought to him. There's this reconciliation moment. It's almost like he looks at his mom. The subtext would be like, hey, I I know, I know I've know, i put you through a lot. Not by my own sin, but just it's been hard to be Jesus' mom. And I know you don't understand what's happening here. I know you don't understand me. I, don't, I know you don't understand the kingdom. I know all that kind of stuff, but you will. And you just need to know that we are good. And what says that better than making sure your mom's taken care of after you're gone? You know? And it's like he looks at his best friend and is like, hey, we've had a rough 24 hours, but we're good. In fact, we're so good that I'm going to trust you to take care of my mom. Like, this is a huge moment. And if we step back a little bit, here's Jesus asking for forgiveness, which brings salvation to a thief. And then as it runs its course through us, it leads to forgiveness and restoration, reconciliation within our relationships. Here are two people representing so much pain for him. And yet he's like, hey, how about we bring some shalom to this stone? How about, how, how about the grace and the love and the mercy of God fills in all of the cracks so that you both know what's happening right here is making all things new and good. It's huge, you know. And I said this in, in week one. Every relationship cannot run its full course like that. There are, some, there are some sins that have happened against you that will be forgiven, but the restoration of that relationship is not a, on this, this earth kind of thing. Some of that's just going to have to wait for heaven. In those extreme cases, especially cases of abuse, but in kind of normal friend, family stuff. This is what's supposed to be happening. The forgiveness that God brings to us is supposed to work its way through. And we're supposed to pursue reconciliation and restoration with one another. If it is possible to do that, we're supposed to pursue it. And here's Jesus once again showing us what it looks like. Modeling it for us in the worst moment of his life. So... Jesus understands you. What does he do with that understanding? He empowers us to be forgiven and to forgive and for that restoration to happen. And here's the here's the other outworking of it. Is in this moment, Jesus He creates a family. Um, he didn't entrust the care of his mom to one of his biological brothers. As the firstborn He should have looked at whoever was the second born. I'm going with Joseph because his name is awesome. He should have been like, Joseph, you got to make sure mom's taken care of. Because you know who's not there? Joseph. So that family had mourned the loss of Joseph already. So he should have looked at Joseph and be like, hey, you got mom? She's yours now his widows were pushed to the side in that time but he doesn't do that he entrusts care of his mom not to a biological brother but to a spiritual brother and there could be some you know there could be some logistical reasons for that maybe those brothers weren't around since they didn't believe in him and all that kind of stuff but maybe but maybe they were around we don't know that it doesn't tell us so we can assume that they weren't there or we can assume they were there that's your it's yours to fill in the gaps. So it could be because of that. It could also be because it said they didn't believe in him, so why would he entrust his mom to someone who doesn't believe in him? That's a good argument, I guess. But his brother James would go on to like write the book of James. The resurrection had a huge impact on that dude. And then his brother Judas, again, not that Judas, but uh, he would go on to write the book of Jude, so at least two of the brothers, we're not sure about Jesus, but at least two of the brothers would go on to write books of the New Testament, which would you would think would make them really worthy candidates of taking care of mom. So if it isn't about their presence and it is about their belief, maybe there's something bigger going on here. And it seems as though in this moment Jesus... Is doing something he's been laying the groundwork for, and he's been basically redefining family. If you were Jewish, family was all about you and your immediate bloodline family, and then the tribe that you were a part of, and then everyone that's Jewish. Like that's where your loyalties were, kind of like concentric circles like that. And then everyone else, all the Gentiles, like whatever, else you know, spend for yourself. It was a very. It was just all about the biological family. And so much of history has followed that same thing, right? It's lineage, and we do all, these, all, these, all this stuff that's built around that same thing. But perhaps in this moment, Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm changing the game. i change a lot of games. One of them is going to be family. Not to replace or disrespect or anything like that, the biological family It's like he's saying, hey, you not only have a biological family to count on, but you also have a spiritual family to count on. He's been laying the groundwork for this. In Mark chapter 3, when his family showed up to, sorry, he's lost his mind, we're here to bring him home. They go in and they tell him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to retrieve you. And this is what he says in response to them. Where's Mark 33? Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about and those who sat around him he said here are my mother and brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother this is mark 3 this is early he's been laying the groundwork for this of saying hey the cross is not only going to forgive sin and like save the sinner it's going to restore and reconcile and it's going to fill in the gaps that your blood family has left going to take you as a stone who's been fractured and the gospel is going to fill all these things in, including the relationships that you have around you. This is what he says in Mark 10. Verse 29. Truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left, listen to this list, house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel." Who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life? John Piper, I was reading a sermon transcript of his. He says, you know, he says here's, Jesus is saying, when you, when you leave the family for the sake of the gospel... God gives you a hundredfold back. Like, what, is that? what does that mean? And he kind of like says it this way: like, well, in what other context than the church do you have a hundred moms, a hundred dads, a hundred siblings, a hundred houses that you can go to in time of need? He says, goes on to say this one of the gifts Jesus gave to us from the cross was the church. A loving, caring, sustaining, encouraging family beyond family. And it's a great encouragement to our faith that he illustrates the meaning of the church the way he did in the relationship between John and Mary. Okay, so bring all that together. Here, standing in front of him, not biological family. Spiritual family. Woman, he's your son. John, she's your mother. And it says, from that day, he took her into his own home. He made family out of not family. It's like adoption. It's, like the, it's, a, it's, it's the same kind of thing. You can make family biologically or you can make family by covenant. And that's what's happening here. And that is what we are doing together. By being part of the church, he has given you hundreds of parents, hundreds of grandparents, hundreds of siblings, hundreds of children, hundreds of grandchildren. You look at your life and the fractures that have happened between relationships, and God has filled in the gaps with the men and women that you are sitting alongside of week after week after week. The people that you gather with on Sundays and in community groups, the people that you're in covenant with through through membership. That's a part of why we push membership so hard, and it's such a like kind of an intense thing, is because we believe that what Jesus is doing here. Is he is redefining family. That he's saying, hey, you have a biological family and you have a spiritual family. And between the two, there's shalom. And think about this. Think about yourself as receiving that. Think about the men and women that God has sent into your life. Through his church. That have been to you what your biological family were not to you. Again, not disrespectful to anyone, just saying. All that being misunderstood by your family, all that being let down by your friends, could it be that God is bringing healing to you through those relationships that He has brought? But then turn it around. Who are you to somebody else? Like, in what situation are you supposed to be the brother? You supposed to be the sister? You supposed to be the stand in dad or mom or grandparent? In what situations are we supposed to look at a family and say, they're really like like what are the what are the voids and how can I step in to meet those voids? That's basically what's happening in the New Testament time for widows and orphans, right? They have these gaps, these voids in relationship. And so Jesus and the New Testament church are pushing into those of saying like every orphan needs parents and every widow needs to be taken care of. And so let's make sure that we are filling in the gaps that have been left by the pain of relational brokenness in our lives. And so could this be a moment where the church is born in a different way than at Pentecost, okay? But maybe that is also what's happening here. Is Jesus understanding the pain and the brokenness and understanding the pain and brokenness that's and how weird they must be feeling in this moment. It's like let's let's reconcile this and let's create a whole new family and let's go forward in shalom. All of this as an outworking of what he is doing as he slowly suffocates from the sin of the world being put upon him. I think that's pretty significant. You know? I think that could be part of why this made the cut. Why he didn't say six things, he said seven things. And how this is just an outworking of the forgiveness he just prayed for, and the salvation that we see with one of the thieves is the way that this comes relationally right into our lives today. So what that could do for you is this could make you incredibly blessed by the fact that your Savior, intercessor, all that, understands you. And just feeling understood might be why God, part of why God brought you here today. It could be that a part of why God brought you here today is, it is in, the, in the line of that forgiveness working its way through into relationships that need to be reconciled and restored. It could be that he's trying to continue to change how people in a very churched country and culture to change how we think about the church. You know, to go from church is something I go to this church I go to that service I go to that group into like our family gathers on Sundays and our smaller families gather during the week and sometimes our family gets together and has coffee or dinner and sometimes our family is on a group text that distracts me from work all day long because these people are so funny and blah 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 We'll say, no, those are the people that are, that are there for me. How God has perfectly crafted things to bring shalom back to us if we will receive what he is saying here and if we are willing to step into that to be that for other people. If you're willing to step outside yourself and say, hey, there's a single mom with some kids and they, they need they need dads. Hey, there's a college student parents live on the other side of the country they need like local parents we're not trying to replace anyone or disrespect anyone we're just trying to say hey I'm ready to step into those roles I'm also ready to recognize and receive those things and so you could find yourself in many different places within this simple exchange that's happening that to me is simple in language but miles and miles and miles deep and the application just could go all over the place so I hope that I hope it's encouraging to you you know some weeks are more encouraging than others. Lent is not necessarily the most encouraging of seasons, so let's take what we can get today right? but it has to evoke something in you and so the way that we respond to that around here we've been singing for a while after you know after the sermon, and uh, I've always liked kind of having just like a whole like back end of things to so just kind of like okay, let me let me deal with what was stirring within me, you know, instead of like half a, half a verse of just as I am. And then we go, race to the Piccadilly, you know. I'm like, no, let's, let's give this a little bit of time before we, before we dismiss and then everything kind of goes back to Sunday, you know. We start doing communion as a possible response. That might be what, what you need to do today is to leave where you are. And to come to the table where Jesus is offering you his body and his blood. And that is him saying, I understand you. That is him saying, I will empower you to reconcile and restore and forgive. That is him saying, uh, I have supplied you with a family and I've called you to be family also. And I'll give you all the grace that you need to walk in the fullness of that. That is him saying to you, "I am everything that you need." And there's something about receiving communion that's like Jesus saying, "Do you want this?" And you're saying, "Yes, I want that." And so it's an option; you can you don't have to come down here. But between praying and singing and communion, we just give a few minutes to kind of cool. Let's like God's been planting some seeds. Let's put a little dirt on top of those a little water, you know, before we go. So once you stand up and our, our musicians are going to come back up, we'll enter into that time of response. People are moving about the room. Whatever you need to do, I encourage you to do that very thing. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful for the, for the beauty of this moment, which I've never honestly never really studied in depth very much at all. And no matter what is happening here, or whatever you're trying to teach or model or whatever it is, uh, to know that you're doing this while you are like while this all of our sins have been put into you uh is just an amazing thing. Like how how can you still have such clarity and vision and care? This is a moment where you could have been completely self absorbed and yet you were like, No, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. That tells us everything we need to know about you. And so, God, in the next few minutes, as we are responding to what you stirred in us through our gathering here today and the songs and the scriptures, and I pray that you would help us to respond in a way that um, that is obedient, you know. That we are recognizing that through song and prayer and communion you are, you are inviting us to something would you help us to say a very sincere yes to you because we trust you and so in these next few moments as we uh, interact with one another and with you ask for your help and your guidance we love you very much And uh, we pray all this in the good and perfect name of Jesus. Amen.